When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Before we start the show, just a reminder to share, like, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. And please, give us a five-star rating. It helps us beat the big tech algorithm. Also, if you love Red Pilled America, please consider becoming a backstage subscriber. You'll have exclusive access to our entire back catalog of episodes and our behind-the-scenes podcast. Just visit redpilledamerica.com and click support in the top menu for details. And don't forget to get merch from the RPA store. RPA merch is always made in America and never stuck on a cargo ship. Visit redpilledamerica.com and click shop in the top menu. Support what you love or it goes away. Thanks, everyone. Even Stevie Wonder could see that we're experiencing a global power shift. Capitalists everywhere are bending the knee to communist China. U.S. jeweler Tiffany also under fire after tweeting an image of a Chinese model covering one eye, with people believing it was done in solidarity with those Hong Kong protests. Actor John Cena has apologized to China. The Gap issued a sincere apology. Mercedes-Benz is offering an apology. Versace, Givenchy, and Coach issued apologies. Delta saying we apologize deeply for the mistake. Marriott apologized to the Chinese government. Everyone fears upsetting the Red Dragon. In the face of this undeniable power shift, what can America learn from Chinese capitalism? I'm Patrick Carelci. And I'm Adriana Cortez. And this is Red Pilled America, a storytelling show. This is not another talk show covering the day's news. We're all about telling stories. Stories Hollywood doesn't want you to hear. Stories the media mocks. Stories about everyday Americans that the globalists ignore. 
You can think of Red Pilled America as audio documentaries, and we promise only one thing. The truth. Welcome, Welcome to, to Red Pilled America. America. Capitalism appears to have a new power center, and it's called China. Not a week goes by without some major financial player apologizing to the Red Dragon. With that in mind, what can America learn from the power of Chinese capitalism? To find the answer, we hear from Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. Chris was the pioneer that opened the Chinese market to Hollywood films. He has a must-hear message on what American industry should do to respond to this global cultural shift. We also revisit conversations with Greg Autry and the late Curtis Ellis, two men that have been sounding the alarm for over a decade about the threat of China's growing economic power. Chris Fenton was working at a big Tinseltown talent agency when the sleeping giant showed its teeth. China really made the shot that was heard around the world in 1997. That's Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon. And what happened in 1997 was up until that date, Hollywood essentially just made movies by gut. At the time, the American box office was still king. China's market for Hollywood films was non-existent. So in the mid-1990s, Movie City wasn't really considering how its films would play outside of the country. But they really sort of had the hubris and the instinct as, you know, the bastions of creative freedom to make whatever they thought would make a good movie. What happened in 1997 is there were three movies made under that strategy. One was Kundun. A Martin Scorsese film distributed by Disney Studios. Another one was Seven Years in Tibet. Starring Brad Pitt. And another one was Red Corner. Starring Richard Gere. And they all were cool movies. They were interesting. They had big movie stars. And they had, you know, stories that were engaging to a lot of the world. And they were seemingly smart movies to make. The one issue that they all had is that they had very sensitive plot points or characters or storylines in them to the Chinese. Two of the movies touched on the Chinese oppression of Tibet. Another one was crime and, and bad things happening in China and the nation of China. But since the Chinese box office was negligible, the filmmakers didn't worry too much about the country's reaction to the films. Well, when China caught wind of these three movies, they put out a warning to Hollywood. Do not release those films. At the time, Michael Eisner, the head of Disney, was trying to build a theme park in China's biggest city, Shanghai. So his studio felt pressure to respond. But the idea of Hollywood bending the knee to Chinese censorship was unthinkable in the mid-90s. Any one studio that did would have damaged their artistic credibility. So Disney issued a one-line statement saying, quote, We have an agreement to distribute Kundun domestically, and we will honor it. End quote. So China stepped up their pressure. They immediately said, particularly to Disney and Michael Eisner, hey, you make those movies again, you're never selling another product or service in our country. And that's when we saw Michael Eisner get on a plane and go over there and essentially apologize for making the movie that he made. What happened next sent shockwaves through Hollywood and eventually American industry. The proposed Disneyland in Shanghai got slow walked by China, 
for almost 20 years. China banned Martin Scorsese and Brad Pitt from their country. They'd eventually reconcile with China, but it would take well over a decade. Richard Gere paid the heaviest price. Not only was he banned from China, he fell out of the good graces of Hollywood as well. And why? Well, aside from defying China's warning by appearing in Red Corner, he'd done the unforgivable. I had a thought about something, actually, before I come in. I want to share it with you. It's going to be short. Just a few years earlier, during the 1993 Oscars, Richard Gere went off script to deliver a message to Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese leader known as the architect of its new financial model. I, I was really struck by this idea that there were one billion people watching this thing. It's astonishing. One billion people watching. And I was curious about what countries this was actually going to. And it is, in fact, being seen in China right now. And the first thought that came to me was, I wonder if Deng Xiaoping is actually watching this right now with his children and his grandchildren and with the knowledge that what a horrendous, horrendous human rights situation there is in China, not only towards their own people, but to Tibet as well. Ever wonder why you haven't seen Richard Gere in a big blockbuster studio flick lately? Well, it's because the Hollywood studios are afraid to touch him because they don't want to anger China. Again, Chris Fenton. He continues to stand for the principles and values that he adheres to as an American versus kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party. And that has penalized him as somebody who's looking to build a career. Hollywood got the message. As one studio head said at the time, quote, I don't think you'll see a lot of material about China now. So in 1997, that was the shot heard around the world. So that was the day where premeditated censorship occurred throughout the town. And anybody thinking about the China market was always thinking about, should I make this movie? And if I do, will it offend the Chinese? How did this happen? How did China gain the kind of power that could frighten one of America's strongest industries? Well, China was actually employing America's original capitalism playbook with a few new Chinese characteristics. To fully appreciate the power move China made, you first have to understand how early U.S. leaders leveraged capitalism to build America. In our three-part series entitled American Icon, we took a deep dive into this topic, but some of it is worth revisiting here. At the dawn of the Second Industrial Revolution, America had a different approach to capitalism than it does today. President Lincoln and his chief economic advisor, Henry Carey, were unabashed protectionist. They were staunchly opposed to free trade. They wanted to encourage the development of American industry, American manufacturing. That's the late Curtis Ellis, known for developing America First policies. Curtis passed in February 2021. We spoke to him in early 2019. Their philosophy was the value-added manufacturing should be located as close to the raw materials that went into the manufactured product as possible, as close as possible. The phrase is used as a put-down today, but Henry Carey's approach to protectionism was an America-first policy. The example that he used was that the textile mills that turned cotton into fiber and then into cloth should be located right next to the cotton field. Because at that time, the cotton was grown in the United States and it was shipped to Great Britain 
were the dark satanic mills of the Dickensian Industrial Revolution turned it into cloth, and then it was shipped back to the United States. Now, Carey and Lincoln and those who followed the Lincoln philosophy felt that it would be better to have these mills here and to specifically have them down south where the cotton was grown. It would make better use of the human capital, the labor that existed there. When people were not planting or harvesting, they could be working in the mills and making the cloth. And it would be, in that sense, more efficient. The Lincoln administration applied this philosophy to everything. Why purchase British steel made from American raw materials when you can make the finished goods right here in the United States, right? Now this philosophy and this economic policy was the bedrock principle of the Republican Party for 50 years, at least 60 years perhaps. And we saw steel mills grow up in Pennsylvania near the anthracite coal fields. While Britain pursued its policy of free trade, America pursued a policy of protection and nurturing domestic industries, and we overtook Britain as the greatest industrial power. Into the early 1900s, Washington, D.C. was largely funded by this protectionist approach. There was no federal income tax. D.C. was almost exclusively funded by tariffs and excise taxes, and our leaders intentionally kept them high to protect our markets. The policy helped make America the greatest economic power on Earth. But in 1913, a dramatic change was underway. The ratification of the 16th Amendment allowed Washington, D.C. to tax income. The tariff is what funded our country. That's Greg Autry, co-author of Death by China, Confronting the Dragon, A Global Call to Action. We spoke to him in early 2019. Uh, When we flipped and started taxing income, which encourages people basically not to work as opposed to encouraging people not to import, things, in my opinion, began to go downhill. Revenue from tariffs were no longer vital in keeping Washington, D.C. running. Imports were on their way to becoming more attractive in the American market. But it would take the end of World War II to make the new development a reality. And the change would set the stage for America to wake the sleeping giant. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. 
When you have health insurance, it's easy to think I'm covered. No worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Welcome back to Red Pilled America. So during the Industrial Revolution, Washington, D.C. was almost exclusively funded by tariffs and excise taxes, which protected American industry from low-cost imports. But the ratification of the 16th Amendment allowed Washington, D.C. to tax income, and the change would set the stage for America to wake the sleeping giant. Again, Curtis Ellis. After World War II, we were king of the hill. We were the almost the sole remaining industrial power. Uh, Europe was a smoking ruin. Japan was a radioactive smoking ruin. We felt that we were invulnerable. The only other surviving industrial power was the Soviet Union. So began the Cold War, a period of geopolitical tensions between the United States and the USSR. At the close of World War II, communism had taken root in the Eastern European countries of Poland, East Germany, Albania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Romania, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary. In Asia, it took hold in Northern Korea, Vietnam, and even the world's most populous country. On October 1, 1949, Mao Zedong announced the creation of the People's Republic of China. As a result, the United States cut off all diplomatic ties with the country. Communism was on the rise, and America took a novel approach to fighting its expansion. There was a deliberate decision made that we would help rebuild Japan and Europe by opening our markets to their manufactured goods, and we would use trade as aid. Uh, This worked tremendously well. Uh, We developed middle-class economies around the world, and not coincidentally, These were countries that were on the front line in the Cold War. We wanted to make sure that Italy and France and Western Europe and Japan and Taiwan uh, remained in the capitalist camp. So we used access to the American market as a way to help build them up. But there was a problem with the so-called free trade policy. Goods weren't really free to flow both ways. Trade became a one-sided affair. 
Japan never opened its markets to American exports, and neither did Europe actually, except for some notable exceptions. Europe pretty much was a, running a one-way street where they could sell Volkswagens and Fiats here, but we did not have the same access to the European market for our Fords and Chevys. What started off as a noble effort, even a strategic geopolitical success, had taken on a life of its own. The definition of free trade morphed into opening up our markets to foreign imports, even if those same countries didn't open up their markets to the United States. America's form of capitalism began its shift to globalism. By the 1960s, the intelligentsia and the policymakers in Washington had pretty much adopted the philosophy of free trade and forgotten the policies that had built up America into the industrial powerhouse that we were. But opening up our markets to our allies, Japan, Italy, West Germany, and the like, did not yet dilute America's power. The price of their goods were comparable to American goods because their citizens weren't working at slave wages under appalling conditions, and there were still quotas on the amount of foreign goods that could be imported into the United States. But that was about to change. A chance meeting between two ping pong players set in motion events that would forever alter American industry. By the 1970s, China was still in the throes of their Cultural Revolution, a movement that rejected all remnants of capitalism. So when the World Table Tennis Championship in Nagoya, Japan, arrived on March 28, 1971, the Chinese athletes were directed to avoid foreigners and their Western influences during the trip. But then something happened. Glenn Cowan, a long-haired hippie on Team USA, missed his bus and accidentally walked onto the shuttle carrying the Chinese national team. As the doors closed behind him, he was met by the cold stares of suspicion by the communist players. The entire team ignored Glenn, except for one. China's star player warmly greeted the American and presented the Yankee with a gift. This chance meeting would begin the thaw of a 20-year Cold War between the U.S. and China. The Red Dragon used the opportunity to open dialogue with the United States. They invited the U.S. ping pong players to China for an exhibition game. Within days, the American team was en route to the communist country. China allowed a small group of American reporters to follow the ping pong players on their 10-day tour of the country. At the China Travel Service, our NBC news team was issued round-trip tickets for the train to Canton. Hopefully, we will be taken to catch up with the U.S. ping pong team, which went in one day ahead of us. Obviously, more is at stake than a few games of table tennis. The ping pong match was attended by 18,000 Chinese citizens. The exhibition more resembled a diplomatic event than a sporting competition. The real significance of the entire trip was not ping pong but politics. The most important moment came when the Americans, along with other touring teams, were invited to a reception given by Premier Zhou Enlai in Peking's Great Hall of the Peoples. The Premier brought up what seemed to have been on his mind all along. He said a new page was opening in U.S.-China relations. The next move seemed to be up to the United States. On that same day, the Nixon administration announced that the U.S. was loosening its trade embargoes and travel bans against the communist country. Nixon set a date to visit China, and in February 1972, he spoke to the American public before embarking on his trip. We must recognize that the government of the People's Republic of China and the government of the United States. 
have had great differences. We will have differences in the future. But what we must do is to find a way to see that we can have differences without being enemies in war. If we can make progress toward that goal on this trip, the world will be a much safer world. Shortly after arriving in China, Nixon met with Chairman Mao Zedong. The Nixon entourage toured the country for a week, visiting factories, schools, and the Great Wall. As the visit came to a close, the magnitude of the meeting reached an apex, and Nixon expressed his desire for better relations between the two countries. If we succeed in working together where we can find common ground, generations in the years ahead will look back and thank us for this meeting that we have held in this past week. The two countries issued a joint communique documenting the success of the trip and conveying that they would increase trade and travel between the two nations. Nixon had opened the door. Again, Greg Autry. So making nice with China was a strategy that he and Kissinger formulated to triangulate against the Soviet Union and geopolitically and militarily, that was brilliant. The problem is that uh, we kind of took our eye off the ball after we opened the door. In 1978, China announced a reformation to become more open to the world. Freedom wasn't on the menu, but the communist country agreed to use capitalist ideas to rebuild its country. America adopted the belief that if China adopted capitalism, freedom would follow. So America began to import things that China was capable of manufacturing, primarily Chinese crafts, silk, tea, things of that nature. Again, Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon. And it was obvious that starting in 1979, when we really opened up trade with China, that it would start to show big, big potential for any industry. The Red Dragon built manufacturing facilities for textiles and pharmaceuticals, and trade slowly began to grow through the 1980s. But just like the post-World War II era, the trade was largely a one-way street. China sold its goods in America. Some foreign items did make it to the communist country, but it was largely items that China could not yet develop on their own. Intel and Volkswagen did make some inroads. Then the American entertainment industry got in on the action via sports. The first one that really jumped in there in that cultural and commercial exchange area was the NBA. In the late 80s, NBA commissioner David Stern traveled to China in hopes of striking a deal to air NBA games on Chinese central television or CCTV, the Chinese government-owned broadcast network. The NBA commissioner was initially snubbed by one Chinese TV executive and then was made to wait hours to meet a low-level employee. When they finally met, the employee lectured David Stern on the need for ennobling the masses rather than entertaining them. In other words, the CCP wanted to inspire their citizens with themes of national greatness rather than just entertain. David Stern was persistent and eventually signed a deal with CCTV. He essentially gave the Chinese government the NBA games for free in order to increase the popularity of basketball in China. The relationship between the two nations was growing. Capitalism was seeping into the country. The justification for American globalism appeared to be proving out. But then, June 4, 1989 arrived. The latest from China where the Chinese Red Cross estimates that between 2,000 and 2,500 people have been killed this weekend as the army moved in to suppress the student demonstration. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese protesters converged in Beijing demanding that democracy accompany the country's newfound capitalism. 
the Chinese government welcomed capitalism because it was enriching their country. But the democracy part was a step too far. So their leaders decided to crush the protesters, literally. Last night, an estimated 30,000 Chinese army troops were sent into the capital to crush what the government called a small band of hooligans and gangsters who were attempting to overthrow the communist regime that has ruled this country for the past 40 years. It is difficult not to use the word massacre to describe what happened. The military, moving in armored vehicles, smashed through barricades that had been put up by the protesters and advanced relentlessly toward Tiananmen Square. They fired automatic weapons into crowds of citizens who, for the most part, could fight back with nothing more than rocks and bottles. The world just watched as the tanks rolled over them and the Chinese military gunned them down. And what America did next sent a clear message to the Chinese Communist Party. More of Red Pilled America after the break. You've heard the expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Well, if you haven't tried the licorice from the licorice guy yet, then that saying might be applicable. What are you waiting for? This licorice will blow your mind. Yes, it's that good. Trust me, I'm a licorice connoisseur of sorts, and it doesn't get any better than the licorice guy. The softness and delicious taste is second to none. They offer jumbo licorice sticks that come in nostalgic flavors like red, black, blue raspberry, chocolate, and green apple, to name a few. The Licorice Guy is an American family-owned business, and we're proud to have them as part of our RPA family. Right now, Red Pilled America listeners will get 15% off when they enter RPA15 at checkout. Visit LicorishGuy.com and order yours today. That's LicorishGuy.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. 
To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Welcome back to Red Pilled America. So on June 4, 1989, the Chinese Communist Party sent troops into Tiananmen Square where protesters were demanding democracy. The world just watched as the Chinese military gunned them down. Thousands died, and America's response sent a clear message to the CCP. Again, Chris Fenton. And then, of course, the Tiananmen Square incident occurred in 1989. And there was a moment of hesitancy because the world was trying to figure out, do we side with what's a really tragic case of human rights violations and terrible persecution and all kinds of authoritarian issues that we don't believe in? Or do we turn a blind eye to it and engage even more with China? And that was the decision that everybody decided to do, which was the latter. Nixon's former advisor, Henry Kissinger, famously counseled President George H.W. Bush to let the Chinese Communist Party have their way. He didn't want to disrupt the offshoring of American manufacturing into China that was underway. The CCP now knew that American capitalism put profit over principle. Commerce between America and China exploded in growth the communist country quickly became America's de facto manufacturing facility. And then in the cultural area, you had Michael Jordan and David Stern over there, and they decided to really open up that market to this sport that really anybody could play. And they saw a real opportunity to build the sport. And they brought that in, and they were extremely successful. And on the backs of that, you also saw Nike build its brand and presence over there because of Jordan. So they were just one part of the equation that was starting to show the true potential of that market. So Hollywood was not blind to that. They saw it, but they also saw the opportunity that somewhere down the road, that market of 1.4 billion people would be the largest in the world. Then Washington, D.C. did something that sealed America's fate. As the 90s rolled along, American leaders began lifting the quotas on foreign imports. Chinese-made American products began flooding the United States. When Hollywood felt China's shot heard round the world in 1997, the world knew that global power had shifted in China's direction. Around that time, Chris Fenton was working at the William Morris Talent Agency. The Cornell University grad had a knack with creatives and quickly rose through the ranks. As Chris's career blossomed in the late 90s, the film industry was going through a shift. New international markets began rapidly opening to Hollywood content. By 2000, the international box office began to equal the domestic box office for the first time. And then obviously Japan became huge, Germany became huge, you had a lot of South America become large. Different markets started to dictate a little bit of what the fodder was that created these films. 
To show how quickly this process escalated, in 2002, the international box office permanently surpassed the domestic box office. And by 2019, the year before COVID hit, the domestic box office amounted to just 27% of the global box office take. So that's why you see a lot of movies with international stars and casts, with universal themes that translate around the world, things that can touch and engage humans from all over the world. That is where, I mean, I guess you could call it a little bit of the blandness has occurred when it comes to making movies because the movie business is about making money. The direction this trend was going was already obvious by the turn of the millennium. That's when it landed on Chris's radar. So randomly I saw a little English language movie at, that somebody sent to me and I thought it was really good and it turned out it was financed by a small company and a bunch of little uh, like small China investors out of China. And I got to know the company that was doing that. And I started to engage with that company as an agent to help them broaden their reach internationally. Around that time, Chris hit a roadblock at William Morris. Yeah, I had a falling out with my boss and, and they let me go. And then I was like, you know what? I, I wanted to start up my own company. I was sort of an entrepreneur at heart. So he decided to explore the process of bringing Hollywood into China. In those early days, there were a lot of firsts because remember, no one was really doing stuff with China at any sort of regular basis. So there was no case study examples to just follow. Everything was new. We started to do various things in the music business, various things in the television business. We brought over the world's strongest band competition with ESPN to shoot in Chengdu. And we ended up getting 50 million viewers watching the finals of that show, which as ESPN and IMG said at the time, that's more viewers than we've had in the whole 25 years of this show if you added them all up, right? Like, so, you know, we started to see real potential. But it wasn't until after the 2008 Beijing Olympics that China really opened its market to the movie industry. And we saw probably two years leading into the Olympics that China was so nervous that they might not pull off the most perfect Olympics on earth that essentially was their coming of age party for everybody to see that they literally stopped everything and said, all we care about is the Olympics. So they focused everything, all the resources, all the manpower, everything on pulling off these amazing Olympics. And when they actually were pulled off, the world, you know, glowed about it. Beyond the competitive drama, every Olympics provides a snapshot of a city and a country at a point in time. This one was more compelling than most since China's rise and its ongoing transformation is the global story, not only of the moment, but likely of the foreseeable future. China was like, we have now arrived. And then they said, okay, well, now that we're a teenager, how do we become an adult? And that was the moment where their central planning committee looks at the next 25, 50, 100 year horizon. And they say, we want to be the best in the world at these like five different disciplines. One of them happened to be the movie business. And why do they want to be number one in the movie business? Well, for one, they saw people wanting to engage in Western content inside their borders. And that's a little scary if you're a part of the Communist Party and want to keep 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt. Because every movie that comes in from the outside has some little aspirational quality to it that makes people aspire to be part of a democracy or part of the free world. So that's something they wanted to eliminate somewhere down the road. Very tall task. Number two is they realized how powerful movies were 
when it comes to spreading soft power messaging around the world. So one of the things they wanted to do was learn from us how to make the best movies in the world themselves. And then those movies would then cater their consumers, knocking the foreign films out of the market simply because the interest would have been with their own film community. But China's third reason for wanting to dominate the movie business was an even taller task. They wanted to make those movies so good, the rest of the world would want to see them. And that soft power messaging that we're so good at with like a Captain America or whatever war movies that we do, all that kind of stuff, they could replicate the same thing and spread their message around the world. Chris Fenton was an entrepreneur, and he saw a big opportunity to bring Hollywood films to the Red Dragon. So I worked with a company that had a lobbying effort, Chinese people talking to the Chinese government officials, and they would know what the directives were from the Chinese Communist Party. Because to get Hollywood films into China, they'd essentially have to be approved by the CCP. So one of the things that would occur is that the, the Chinese executives that I worked with would hear what the Chinese government wanted. And then it was Chris's job to figure out how to meld those desires with the story of a particular film. One movie he did this with was a film called Looper. And that was a Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, Emily Blunt movie directed by Ryan Johnson, who's gone on to direct some of the Star Wars movies. Now, Looper tells the story of a hitman named Joe that works for a mobster from the future. The mobster is played by actor Jeff Daniels. You know Jim Carrey's sidekick from Dumb and Dumber. Through a time-traveling machine, this mobster teleports people back from the future to a specific location in present-day America where Joe the Hitman kills them on sight. The twist is, and this isn't a spoiler, that Joe's older self is sent back and young Joe is supposed to kill him. Young Joe is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt and old Joe is played by Bruce Willis. Now, one minor detail about the original script is that the screenwriters chose France as old Joe's home in the future. And he retires in the script in France because he thought that that's the utopian place to retire and have a great rest of your life. The problem is that the CCP doesn't allow time travel in movies released in China. Anything told in the future, time travel into the future, they want to control the narrative of where the world is going and how China is in the center of it. Looper had time travel in it. It had nothing to do with China. China would never allow that movie into the market. But we said, what if we change the future to being in China? After some arm twisting, Chris and his team convinced the filmmakers to change Bruce Willis's future home from France to Shanghai, China. And then Chris went to work with his contacts in China to make sure the future Shanghai was depicted as the CCP wanted. And then we developed the Shanghai backdrop, the cityscape, under the tutelage of the Shanghai municipal government. And then ultimately in that movie, we showcase Shanghai 40 years in the future exactly as China wants it seen. And then we have scenes in the movie where literally Jeff Daniels, the mobster from the future, throws down his fist in the middle of a meeting with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and says, you don't want to move to France when you retire. You want to move to China. And I know that because I'm from the future. You should go to China. I'm going to France. I'm from the future. You should go to China. I'm going to France. China put the wind to Looper's back. Looper, a small movie, $32 million, was a top 10 film in China that year. Not only that, they released it during a national holiday week where everything from the outside world is banned. 
They did that because they wanted as many people to watch that movie. And then they messaged that, look, Hollywood knows where we're going as a country. Now you do. Look at this movie and tell me that we are not now validated by the rest of the world, right? And then on top of it, the movie released around the world and everybody watches a film about how the main character, all he wants to do one day is move to China. Chris worked to make other films compliant with the Chinese censors, including Iron Man 3. And he didn't think much about what he was doing at the time. His job was to expand Hollywood into a market with 1.4 billion people. He was essentially growing the reach of an American art form. I understand this effort. In 2016, your humble hosts worked with Kobe Bryant and other NBA players to expand their business opportunities in China. Most people doing this kind of work thought they were spreading American culture into a communist country and believed that the exchange of culture and commerce was good for all involved. But then in late 2019, China pulled the trigger and another shot was heard around the world. The NBA makes billions of dollars in the Chinese market and it's apparently siding with Beijing. The sleeping giant was now fully awake. More of Red Pilled America after the break. Welcome back to Red Pilled America. So American entrepreneurs and capitalists were happily working to spread American culture into China. Movies and the NBA were flourishing in the communist country. Almost everyone believed that the exchange of culture and commerce was good for all involved. But then in 2019, China pulled the trigger and another shot was heard round the world. It was the end of an ugly day with street battles that turned into brawls and seemed to go on forever. And in one dramatic moment, a first for these protests, an officer pulled out a gun and shot an 18-year-old protester in the chest. In October 2019, protests erupted in Hong Kong. All these protests came exactly because it is China's National Day. The protesters now want democratic rights guaranteed and an inquiry into police brutality. It's not just the protesters who are opposed to the government and who are demanding change. It's really a very broad swath of the community in Hong Kong. The entire ordeal had a familiar scent. A whiff of Tiananmen Square was in the air. About a week later, Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey did what used to be considered uncontroversial. He showed support for people demanding freedom. The NBA is facing backlash in China over a tweet made by Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey. For weeks, there have been massive protests in Hong Kong, which started because of a controversial extradition bill. The demonstrations have since morphed into a bigger fight for democracy in the semi-autonomous territory. Well, on Friday, the Rockets GM tweeted a picture that read, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Owner Tillman Fertitta quickly stepped in saying, Mori does not speak for the Rockets. We are not a political organization. The NBA also released a statement and there's a bit of a nuance between the English version of the statement and then the Chinese version oh, wow. of the statement. So the English version says, we recognize that the views expressed by Houston Rockets general manager, Derry uh, Mori have deeply offended many of our friends and fans in China, which is regrettable. That's just a part of it. In the Chinese version, he says, we are extremely disappointed by Houston Rockets general manager's inappropriate remarks. 
which have undoubtedly hurt the feelings of Chinese fans very badly. So it's a very small tweak there, but st- a little strongly worded Not so small. in the Chinese version. And now the Chinese Basketball Association announced it's ending cooperation with the Houston team. And the company that broadcasts the NBA in China says it won't cover Rockets games. Forbes estimates NBA China is worth more than $4 billion. And thanks to Chinese Hall of Famer Yao Ming, the Rockets are one of the most popular teams. And that's why a tweet could cost the franchise millions, and some fans speculate it could cost its GM his job. LeBron James, who's typically very outspoken against the American government, took to the microphone and basically sided with the communists. I just think that, you know, when you're misinformed or you're not educated about something, um, and and I'm just talking about, um, you know, the tweet itself, you know, you never know the ramifications that can happen. That's when something strange occurred. In a time where Americans right, left, and center can't seem to come together on anything, a bipartisan outcry condemned the NBA for bending the knee to China. What was funny about this, though, was that the English version of the statement was very different from what it was being translated to for the Chinese internet. So, like, in English, the statement was basically like, hey, China, we're sorry you're offended. But then the Mandarin one was like, rest assured, China, we will feed this man to the wolves. This may be the issue where people finally wake up, because like what you said, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle on. Everybody agrees this is about basic human decency, and you care more about your money and becoming a billionaire. Shortly before Daryl Morey's tweet, Chris Fenton had just gotten back from a U.S. congressional delegation trip to China. And we had gone to Hong Kong and we had met with protesters. And then we had also gone up to Beijing and various other cities in China. And I saw firsthand what was going on in Hong Kong at the time. And it didn't really register to me sort of the importance of of that historic sort of period. And then when Daryl Morey tweeted that out, his support, I didn't for a second go, wow, that's a really smart, well thought of tweet that means a lot because there are people that are fighting for certain freedoms and various other things in in Hong Kong. And we saw that firsthand and good for him. The first thing I thought about was the commerce that they had going on in China and how that was in jeopardy. And I didn't think anything more about it until the United States, the populace here, started to catch wind of how the NBA was fumbling and bumbling their reaction to his tweet. And over the course of a few days, we started to realize the American public was starting to get upset that it looked like the NBA was kowtowing to China in order to get business done in that country. And the bottom line is they were. And I thought about my 20 years, right? We had this mission of globalism, this mission of free market capitalism, that the more we opened China to our products and services from the United States the better it was for both the United States and the rest of the democratic world. Like we believe that. So anything we had to do to open up that market, we did it. And we didn't think about any sort of long-term effects on sort of the overall health of Americans or how maybe we were compromising the values and principles of what makes it important to be Americans. We just were trying to open the market. And we were caught up in that fog of war as whatever cog in the wheel we were in that sort of exchange of capitalism. 
So when I looked back at what I had written, I started thinking, oh my God, there were moments in that 20 years where people actually were trying to wake me up to the fact that maybe we were doing things that we shouldn't be super proud of. Chris Fenton had a beautiful awakening, and he artfully chronicled that moment in his must-read book, Feeding the Dragon. You see, China follows the rules of Sun Tzu's The Art of War, and one of those rules is that the opportunity of defeating the enemy is provided by the enemy himself. China was using a version of America's playbook from the time of President Lincoln. While Britain pursued its policy of free trade, America pursued a policy of protection and nurturing domestic industries, and we overtook Britain as the greatest industrial power. Just like America did with Great Britain at the dawn of the Second Industrial Revolution, China used American globalism to become arguably the most powerful force on the planet. The Red Dragon used our strength against us and made it our weakness. Again, Chris Fenton. We have fed the dragon excessively. It's been very successful on a capitalistic basis, but it has not been successful on the long-term health and welfare of what we need as Americans to have a healthy society and a healthy country. So it's something where we need to find a way to sort of get back some of what we gave up while still keeping some sort of a symbiotic competitive strategic relationship with China. Which leads us back to the question, what can America learn from Chinese capitalism? Chinese capitalism puts China first, even before profits. When China slow walked to Shanghai Disney or temporarily cut off some ties to the NBA, it did so knowing that it was foregoing revenue because it places the national good of China before short-term profits. And that policy has made their communist country arguably the most powerful force in capitalism. American leaders believe that if we brought capitalism to China, it would make their country more free. But instead, it's made America less free. The U.S. needs a fundamental shift in mindset. Without compromising our core values, America must use an aspect of the Chinese model. America must use capitalism to put America first. Number one, patriotism before capitalism, mainly because we have to do it. Otherwise, we're going to lose the form of capitalism that we beloved. The second thing I would say is strength in numbers. Different industries need to band together and back each other when they take stands, when individual companies take stands or individual CEOs, so that the leverage that is created causes the Chinese Communist Party to retreat. American industry must shift its mindset to put patriotism before profits. The globalism model as we know it has failed. It has not made America stronger on the world stage. Freedom has not blossomed in communist China. American capitalism must put America first. Because if we don't, the globalists within will use every crisis to shift our model closer to that of the woke giant. Well, my freedom is being kind of disturbed here. No, screw your freedom. Visit Chris Fenton's website, feedingthedragonbook.com, where you can buy his book and follow him on social media. That's feedingthedragonbook.com. 
Red Pilled America is an iHeartRadio original podcast. It's produced by me, Adriana Cortez, and Patrick Carelci for Inform Ventures. Now, our entire archive of episodes is only available to our backstage subscribers. To subscribe, visit redpilledamerica.com and click support in the top menu. Thanks for listening. Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.